My name is Steve Smith, and our scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to begin this morning in a way that is a little bit different. I want to start with silence, but the silence is directed towards you. Here's what I want you to do. For the next 30 seconds or so, I want you to think about your life. Maybe what it was like last week, last month, months behind that, the last few years. I just want you to reflect on your life. I'm going to pause in in total silence and let you do that. Now, I don't know what kind of thoughts may have gone through your mind. May have been recent memories. Perhaps you thought about circumstances or struggles or the difficulty of the last two years that could have touched just about every aspect of your life. The reason I did that is because I want to frame the context of the book of Hebrews. First of all, we have no idea who wrote it. It's one of those rare books in the Bible that nobody agrees on the author. As a matter of fact, many commentators have said, all the way back to the second century, only God knows who wrote this book. But it was a book that was adopted by the church as the inspired word of God. The book itself doesn't read exactly like a letter. It almost reads like a sermon. As a matter of fact, if you compare it to other letters, you will notice that there's a sort of advanced Greek rhetoric going on in the letter. That's why some have speculated it might have been Apollos, who was a great Greek rhetorician trained in Alexandria. But again, we don't know. What we do know from reading the letter 
and I don't suspect any of you read the letter all the way through this week, as I did, but if you had read the letter all the way through this week, you would probably have noticed a couple of things. You would have noticed that the language seemed to indicate that the writer's audience was kind of battered and broken. You might have seen innuendos of persecution. You certainly would have seen explicit references to doubt and falling away and giving up. Discouragement, in effect. It's interesting what the author does with that context. He doesn't give them three easy steps to solve their problems. Not even ten easy steps to solve the problem. Actually, here's what he does. He says, based on the life that you have been going through, I want you to remember Jesus. And I want you to turn your eyes, fix your eyes, he says, on Jesus. Now you say, well, that just sounds like one simplistic answer to my problems. No, not really. Not when we focus on Jesus. Richness emerges. How does that happen? It happens when we recognize at the very beginning of the book, as we read just a few moments ago, that the person of Jesus is actually God in the flesh. That the person of Jesus is the exact representation of God. That the person of Jesus walked in our shoes. That the person of Jesus suffered like we suffered. That the person of Jesus felt every temptation we have felt. As a matter of fact, there's a sense in which the author of the book of Hebrews says, for years, we've been wondering what God was like. We've been listening to the prophets. We've been listening to mysterious revelations. And all of that, including the temple, the tabernacle, was kind of like a shadowy figure of God. And then when Christ came, God stepped out of the shadows. I actually like the image God stepped out of the frame. Some of you may have loved ones that have passed away and you have pictures of them that are important to you. Or maybe a loved one that's far away and you look at his or her picture every day. We have lots of pictures of my father who's gone to be with the Lord. There's one particular picture that my mother has in the house been on the refrigerator for a long time of my dad. It's a close-up shot. And really more than I'd say any other picture, for me, having known him, it captures my father. And sometimes, sometimes when I see the picture, I think to myself, I wish dad could step out of the frame. That's what happened when Jesus came. God 
stepped out of the frame of eternity into history. And then we learned what God was like in an intimate way. Not that it hadn't been there before through the prophets, but now we saw the hand of God touch the leper and the blind. We saw the person of Jesus who was God in the flesh become the friend of sinners, of harlots, of tax collectors, of Samaritans, of the outcast, of the poor. We saw God and the person of Jesus Christ welcome the children. Now that doesn't sound like a big deal to us today. Of course we welcome the children, but it wasn't quite the same back then. Oh, the children were viewed through the eyes of the future. But as children, they were virtually ignored in terms of important matters. Just get out of the way. You remember the disciples when the children came swarming around Jesus and the disciples said, get them away from him. And Jesus said, oh no, you stop right there and you bring them to me. Then we understood what God was like in the flesh It was no longer a shadow. So first, the reason he gives us this answer, turn your eyes towards Jesus, is because it reminds us of what God is truly like. Second, he says turn your eyes towards Jesus because he wants to remind us that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is the one who sympathizes with us. Because he's like us. Now, let me indulge myself in front of you for a minute and ask you whether or not you share the same feeling when you hear that. First four verses have talked about the majesty of Christ, that he's God in the flesh, that he's exalted, that he's supreme, that he's creator and sustainer of all things, that he's the exact radiance of the image of God. And then, boom, he's like us. I tell you, for me, that is intellectual whiplash. Up there, down here, how could it be both? But it is. And that's the beauty of the Christian faith. That's the beauty of Jesus. So the writer of the book of Hebrews says, the one that is out there that is glorious, the exact radiance of God, is the same one that was here and walked among us. And he sympathized with our weaknesses. He was, as the text puts it, one of our brothers. That's both humbling and amazing. There's a third thing that the author of the book of Hebrews says when he encourages us to look to Jesus. He said, I want you to look to Jesus because he, he fills out the picture. Steps out of the shadows, and he fills out the picture. Now, those who were listening to the sermon or reading the letter were people who were well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. That's why he's so elaborate about the description of the temple and the sacrificial system. He's bringing all that back to their memory, and he's basically saying all of that was grand and glorious and important, absolutely necessary, but it was only a shadow, a shadow of what was coming. And when Christ came, he became the high priest and he stepped into 
that tabernacle. And he walked right into the Holy of Holies. He carried with him not the blood of bulls or goats or lambs, but his own blood. He was both high priest and the Lamb of God. And he stepped into the reality of the shadows that we had always seen and completed the picture. God in the flesh. Turn your eyes towards him, he says. Whatever your situation. Another thing he tells them when he asks them to turn their eyes towards Jesus, he says, I want you to turn your eyes towards Jesus, who is the one who holds the future promise of a better day. A lot of times um, when worship opens, I'm surprised by the way someone prays or a song that's picked. It matches beautifully. It's not because we always orchestrate it. I, I think it's the work of God. So I remind you of John's prayer. Where he said, we long for the day when cancer is a memory. When heart disease is gone. When addictions are just a vapor. When conflict is over, when sorrow is ended, and when death is no more. That's why the author says, look to Jesus. The author and perfecter of your faith. Look to Jesus in your difficult times. Because the promise of Jesus is a promise of newness of life. Not just here, but in the future. He didn't say it, but we can say it. Look to Jesus and remember that someday everything is going to be made new. And God, because of the Lamb, which is at the center of the throne, is going to wipe every tear from our eye and there'll be no more sadness or mourning or sorrow, no death or dying. It'll be gone forever. So in the difficult times, look to Jesus And remember that promise. Furthermore, he tells people who are struggling, I want you to understand that sometimes the struggle is intended. As a matter of fact, sometimes the struggle might be the discipline of God. We don't always understand it, but by faith, when we look to the future and keep our eyes on Jesus, sometimes it comes in focus. You know, I love C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite passages in his children's literature, Chronicles of Narnia, is a story when Lucy and the children were, were walking and it was dark and <laughs> the path was treacherous and they were scared and they couldn't see to the right or to the left. And they finally made it. When they did, Aslan showed up the figure of Christ. 
And Lucy was recounting the journey and how difficult it was and how scary it was. And they didn't know which way to turn. And she said, and right in the middle of it, there was this lion roaring. Sometimes to the right, sometimes to the left. And we were scared out of our minds. And Aslan said, my dear child, that was me. That was me. I was keeping you right and left on the path. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus and know that sometimes even the difficulties and the discipline that come from his loving hand is shaping you for a glorious homecoming with him. How does this all happen? Well, it might sound like I'm trivializing the book, but I'm not. It happens by faith. See, he begins the book by saying, I'll tell you what faith is. Faith is the confidence in what cannot be seen, but what is hoped for. You can't see it, but you believe it, and you hang on to it. That's faith. And then by the time you get to chapter 11, he basically says, I want to remind you of what I said at the beginning. It's about faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus and keep the faith. Don't desert the gathering together of believers. Be together. Walk together. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And then he gives this wonderful list of people who have done it. We've walked through trials that are even greater than ours. And they've come out the other side and we will join them someday in the reward. It happens by faith. What do we have faith in? Oh, wait a minute. It's like a bad dream all over again, right? We have faith in an invisible God. Where's Jesus? Do you see him? No, you like the, the disciples experience his absence. But also, you like the disciples can experience his presence by faith. You can't see him. It's likely you can't hear him. Not audibly, but because of the power of the Spirit, you can feel his presence right with you. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. How do we know it's possible? We know it's possible because he was really in the flesh. We know it's possible to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because he actually died and it was really his blood and it was a sacrificial atonement for our sins. We have the gospels that tell us the story that are well verified by sources and he rose again to completely redeem us and restore all things. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because he's real. It's not a fantasy It's not a wish fulfillment. It's a historic reality. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. What does this mean today? Well, I 
I go back to a question. Is your faith weak? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter, completer of your faith. You know what the first step of faith is? The acknowledgement that you don't have much. Or that the only kind of faith you've got is you're back to the wall and you don't know what else to do but surrender. That's the acknowledgement of faith. That's the first step. You know what the second step of faith is? It's to recognize that even that first step of faith is not enough and is imperfect. And it really won't take you to the end because you have to keep on exercising the faith. So the next step of faith is the recognition that it is God in the person of Jesus Christ who perfects your faith and not you. You didn't have any to begin with. Now you got a little and you want more and you struggle and you try to conform. No, look to Jesus. He's the perfecter of your faith, not you. Do you struggle with your understanding of God? An image of God that just seems completely out of focus? A shadow that makes no sense? A God that, quite frankly... You hardly want to serve. Look to Jesus. There is the perfect image of God. The complete, perfect image of God is Jesus. Look to Jesus. In bracket everything else. Are your circumstances overwhelming? Temptation too great? Persecution too intense? Look to Jesus. You know why? Because he's interceding for you. That's what the epistle tells us. 7.25. He's ever interceding. To the father or his children. Now sometimes we've gotten that twisted and mixed up and, and we misunderstand it. We, we, we assume that what that means is we got a really nice God in Jesus, a really harsh God in the father. And Jesus is saying, don't punish him. Please don't punish him. Give him a break. No, no, that, that's really not it. I love the way Dane Ortland put it. And his book that I've referred to many times and promised never to say anything about again. And here I am, gentle and lowly. <laughs> he said, it, it, it's like this. It's like an older brother cheering on his younger brother when he's going around the track in a race. See it? See the older brother? 
standing on his feet, screaming at the top of his lungs. He doesn't care what people think. His little brother is running a race, and it doesn't matter how far ahead he is of the pack. He still keeps screaming and cheering him on right up to the finish line. And he rejoices after the race is over. Orland said, I think that's what it means that he's interceding for us. The deal is done. The blood is sufficient. Forgiveness has been offered. But he's cheering us on. He's completing and perfecting our faith. When I first read that, I thought, man, that's a great analogy. And I realized it really wasn't anything new. It's in the book of Hebrews too. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses cheering us on in our faith. Fourth question, do you you need to be reconciled to God? I guess that's a rhetorical question because you know the answer to that, yes. Everybody knows they need to be reconciled to God. It's intuitive. Then as we read the scriptures, it's even more obvious. We need to be reconciled to God. But maybe you've, you've known that and, and accepted it, but you're doing your best to be reconciled to God. You're trying so hard to be worthy of God. You're exhausted from trying. Stop trying. Just surrender to his love. You can't ever do enough to earn God, but you can't ever get enough of the love of God because it's eternal. Stop and surrender to his love. This Jesus that we're counseled to turn our eyes to, high priest, lamb of God, son of God, God in the flesh. The invitation is this. Come to this Jesus with all your worries, with all your sins, with all your fear, with all your doubt, with your tiny little bit of faith, And with all your weariness, come to Jesus. Come to me, Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's not just a one-time invitation, my friends, for people who haven't ever come. It's an ongoing invitation to those who have come before. Come. I'll give you rest. He came for people who struggle just like us. He died for people who struggle just like us. He loves people who struggle just like us. Remember, whatever your struggle, 
Fix your eyes on Jesus and let him perfect your faith. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this word from the author of Hebrews. A word of encouragement that all of us need, no matter what we're going through right now, we've been through something that may be more difficult in the past. A word of encouragement we all need, even if we've been in the faith for a long time, because we get weary, we get tired, we try. We do our best to become worthy. And maybe in our minds we know it's, it's futile, we'll never be worry, uh, worthy, but in our hearts, Lord, remind us of that. And then remind us of the parallel reality, which is, that's why you came. Because we weren't worthy. That's why you love us. Because we're not worthy. It's, it's you, Lord. So help us to turn away from doubt and fear and worry and come as weary people to find rest in you. And as we follow you, Lord, perfect our faith because only you can do it. You gave it to us to begin with, and we long to live with you. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.